Love and Radio is brought to you by Igloo. Igloo is an intranet you'll actually like, making it easier to communicate and collaborate with your teams at work. It's built with easy-to-use apps like blogs, calendars, file sharing, forums, microblogs, task management, and wikis. Plus, Igloo works on your laptop, tablet, or phone. Get started with one of Igloo's templates, free to use with up to 10 people. Go to igloosoftware.com slash love. I was brought into this investigation room. And they said they would continue now and ask me some more questions to understand why I actually came to Moscow to improve the relations between East and West. The mood was really friendly. It was not feeling like I'm a stranger, very polite. But I noticed also that they do not really trust me. They told me this investigator, when he was 19, he was only thinking about getting drunk or having girlfriends not about peace and relations between East and West. They said, we don't believe you now that you're just a young guy from 19 years, only by yourself to improve the relations. I said, we cannot believe that. But I told them, I'm telling the truth. And everything what they're saying is honest. 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 Honesty was some strange word for them at that time in the Cold War. Then about five o'clock in the morning, one of the investigators asked me if I have an idea where they're going to bring me now. And I said, most likely they wouldn't bring me to an hotel or something. So then an officer came. Then a fixed steel door was opening. And I saw the jail. And I was scared. They asked me to tell me the truth from the beginning. From Radiotopia, you're listening to Love and Radio. I'm Nick Vanderkolk. Today's episode, I Sitting Beside Me, featuring Matthias Roost. Passers-by watched amazed as a Cessna light aircraft landed in Red Square. Its pilot was a young West German, Matthias Roost. There was a small plane and uh, people were curiously climbing up and looking inside and some people were talking to the pilot and asking him questions. He was just leaning against the side. And then uh, an American tourist in the crowd called and asked him um, where he had come from and he said from Helsinki. It gave us a shock because it was a German and he violated Soviet airspace, broken laws and international regulations. It could have turned into a bilateral crisis. But what would cause a 19-year-old to do such a thing? The first idea occurred to me in autumn 1986. It was right after that summit in Reykjavik. Ronald Reagan and Michael Gorbachev supposed to sign a treaty and they couldn't get it done. It's really difficult from today to get at that feeling how it was, how it was to, to live in a almost 
war. We were surrounded by enemy countries. You know that uh, thousands of nuclear missiles were pointed at where you were living, from both sides. And that's why I came to the conclusion that we need to build an imaginary bridge between West and East. The only way I can do is by the help of an aircraft. I wasn't sure from the beginning. It was maybe I calculated that I had maybe a 50 to 50 chance to, to reach actually, to reach Moscow. But I couldn't be sure. I was sure that they had a lot of missiles based along the borders. They had aircraft everywhere. They had a very, very sophisticated radar equipment. So I need a little bit of luck. I didn't talk about that to anyone, to my parents or to my friends, because they would have done anything to stop me from flying to Moscow, because they would have seen me being shot down by the Russian forces, for sure. But if I would be able to reach Moscow, it would show everybody that weapons and armaments is not the conclusion for securing peace. I arrived in Finland on May 25th, 1987, so three days before I departed to Moscow. It was about 10 degrees outside, it was quite cold, it was just like I felt, like miserable and I was freezing all the time. I was walking around the city for about these two days. I was always reflecting and trying to convince myself that I was doing the right thing. I was tending to just leave and go back, fly back home. It felt like it's, it's easier. No? This, I realized more and more as closer as this departure day came, it was, it was like a wall that I wasn't be able to climb over. I was very much scared. Scared of doing the wrong decision, being shot down, of death. Then the 28th of May arrived. I woke up in the morning, I didn't sleep the whole night, and then the taxi brought me to the airport, and I wasn't sure at that time what I was actually doing. I was just filling in the flight plan. Destination was Stockholm. Then I lift off. I was following for half an hour the, the, exactly the direction of, of, the, of the tower. Then it felt like, like an out-of-body experience. It was not like, like me. It's not like I was sitting there and was doing a, a clear, clear decision. It was just like it happened by itself. I changed the direction of the aircraft. I was going on, on the course to Moscow and then I was just flying there. And it felt all the time like, like I was sitting next to me and I was watching me how I was conducting that aircraft and keeping it on course. This is something like you're living between two lives in, in that moment. And you cannot really see and control that, what was happening in that moment. One hour later, I crossed the Soviet border 
And I didn't see any aircraft yet, and I was surprised. Nobody is approaching me. There's no attempt. I had this radio on the emergency frequency squawked. They could have talked to me if they wanted, but there was nothing, it was just a silence. 20 minutes later, I was actually approached by an aircraft, a military one. I just saw, it, saw the silhouette coming behind the cloud and was just heading straight to me. My eyes opened wide. My heart dropped down on my pants. And I was waiting actually for the hit. Explosion or something like I saw it on TV. But nothing happened. Silence for minutes. Five or six minutes later, I saw the aircraft, the military one, passing by. Maybe about 50 meters lower than me flying. And I saw clearly the red star on the outside and the two pilots. I saw them wearing white helmets. I saw the oxygen mask, orange overalls. I said, what is that doing now? Nothing happened. After about five hours, I saw the first buildings of Moscow rising on the horizon. Then I said, I'm there. I'm safe. Because I did know that as soon as I reached the buildings, the city, they wouldn't dare to shoot me down anymore because that there would have been the risk to hide that somebody else would be harmed on the ground. The next challenge was just to, to locate Red Square. I want to land. But the people there, and I cannot risk, uh, we land there with all the people in, 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 in Red Square. So I decided to just make an overshoot, to go down, maybe to 10 to 15 meters, about that, to indicate them I want to land there. I did that, and I saw how slowly the, the people spread. They went to the side and some of them remained shocked, standing straight in front of the aircraft. If I would land now, I would hit them all down. So I said, maybe they understand that. And when I return at the second approach, they would have understood that I wanted to land right there. But it happened the same thing. The people always returned like ants back to the center of the Red Square. But then I discovered a six-lane white bridge heading straight to the Red Square, the Moskowitzki Bridge. Then I decided for to land on that bridge. There was a few cars at that time on that bridge. I was overtaken on the left side and then I saw this, this man watching to the side, watching me straight in the face with big eyes. And, and I was only hoping that he would not lose the control of his car and we maybe would have a crash. But then he was just going ahead. Scary, funny moments. Then we were just parking the um, aircraft. The engine was off. I was sitting quiet in the, in the pilot's seat, surrounded by 
the crowd, it's time to get out. Then a boy, maybe 15 to 16, started to talk to me in English. The first question was, where you came from? I'm from, from Germany. I was like, that's good, that's from our partners. Welcome, also said. They said, to make it clear, I'm from, from West Germany, yes, and not from East Germany. Well, they were very surprised. One of those huge black sedans arrived. The tall man walked out. He had a lot of medals on, on his chest, on his uniform. And he asked me first, he wanted to see my passport. I handed it over to him and he went through it. And then, where's your visa, please? I said, I don't have one visa. If I would have applied in, in Hamburg in the consulate for one visa, I would have stated I wanted to fly to Moscow to demonstrate for peace. Uh, what I would have done? If he would think that I would have issued me a visa for that purpose. And he said, of course not. He told me, you were a really brief boy. And he said, what you did is really, really good. And he supports that in, a, in a, this, this idea. And he wishes me all the best to go ahead with it. But he said, but next time, please apply for a visa to make sure that everything goes its way. I said, yes, I can do that. 20 minutes later, military trucks arrived. Soldiers jumped off of the trays and they start to bar off the people with some steel barriers. When I asked the boy, what, what they're saying? Soldiers say that the people have to leave now. But they're not going, they said, they don't want to leave me alone because they want to protect me from them. I said, oh, this is interesting. They want to help me and protect them from their own military. I like that idea. And then they brought me to this police station and it was in, in this, this building was in really sad status. I was brought into this investigation room. Then about five o'clock in the morning, one of the investigators asked me if I have an idea where they're going to bring me now. And I said, most likely they wouldn't bring me to an hotel or something. Yes, he said, you're right. You will not, will not be brought to an hotel. You will just be brought now to the jail that is next to our building. But I stand tough and I realize I'm not changing my versions. And they couldn't find anything on that side that is, was undermining what I was saying. Went ahead for about three weeks, this kind of investigation. Then three weeks later, when the KGB finished the pre-investigation, and they showed me also a little, little certificate that stated that the pre-investigation is completed. And now everybody was smiling. And they offered me some cookies and some really good tea. I said, what are you celebrating now? They are convinced today that I am not a spy, that I am not a provocator. And they said, they see me now as a friend of the Soviet Union. Just like that. I said, you are playing with my mind now, yes? You want to make me mad in the last minutes. I said, no. It's, it's really what, what we have found out. He said, you are not a, not a provocator. You're not an enemy. You really did that, what you said. And that we honor. 
the Soviet legal system at that time was that way that you were only able to ask for a lawyer after the investigation was finished. Very convenient for them. I asked my lawyer what they presume. I said, is it possible that I get a suspended jail term or something? And he said, it's really rare in, in the Soviet Union that the sentence suspended. Maybe you're getting 10 years or so? I said, 10 years? I saw myself with a long grey beard. Hardly any teeth in the mouth. Bended back or something. That was my picture of 10 years in the Lieber camp. I was bored with a green van to the courtroom. This courtroom was full of people. Most of them were journalists from the Soviet Union from all over the place. I saw my parents. My brother was also there. There was a red painted bench. Especially red. Signal red. And it was still sticky. <laughs> so I said, they just painted it for me so it looks new. But they didn't wait long to dry it out. So I was sitting there on this bench and I was sticking on it with my pants. And I only thinking about my pants now spoiled with this red paint. I said, what for an important question am I afford to have now in my mind? I'm thinking about the red paint on my pants. And then I asked him, do you have anything to cover that? And this guy was asked, what, what do you want you to do now? You're now in court? And they gave me a towel. The kitchen towel. The prosecutor started accusing me of hooliganism, including illegally the Soviet airspace, put danger to air traffic. They were very much convinced that I just did all that to become a public figure. That is what the whole West is looking for, to just become the public figure and to earn a lot of money. I said that I wanted to move something. I wanted to change the world to a peaceful one. More peaceful one. To become a public figure in their terms, without being noticed in the public, you cannot really move anything. When I met my parents, the first thing my mother said to the prosecutor who was also in the room, she asked them not to torture me and not to give me any drugs. The Soviet investigator said, we're not putting him under drugs or we're not torturing your son. My mother said, but everybody knows that you torture people. And he said, maybe in the past on some other people, maybe that happened to We cannot deny that. Your son is safe and he's fine and we will not harm him. And my mother was kind of surprised to hear that and of course she was relaxed. It was a sad moment when we have to separate again. Because I didn't know when I would meet them again. This can be months, it can be even years. I didn't know. My mother had tears in her eyes running down her cheeks. It was shaky. I'm sure it was very pale in the face. The whole body was shaken and I felt like I was almost, I was falling flat on the floor next moment. And then the judge started to read his, his papers and the interpreter was translating it to me. And I only heard labor camp. Four years. Four years? I said, oh my God.
four months I said I was in Rio. And now four more years, I almost fainted. I think that is a feeling only somebody else who also was sentenced to some jail term can really experience or you know, following that what, what I felt in that moment. And I think I would cry in that moment if I could. Could have cried. I was dried out. I felt like all my life energy escaped from out of space or something. It was just mute, without any emotions, without any feelings. Just an empty, hollow body. My first Christmas coming up in, in jail, we had a lot of snow and it was very cold, minus 30 degrees. I got the permission to walk two hours a day in this garden of the jail. One day I remember they piled up all of the snow close to the wall. It looked like you could just jump on that small pile of snow and you can jump over the wall. Why I just do not jump on that pile of snow and just jump over the wall and just running away from, from my destiny, from my imprisonment. I think once one of the supervisors who were with us outside, he noticed that I was always watching this pile of snow. The next day, it had disappeared. This is what you have in jail. It's only the, 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 your thoughts only circling about how to get out of there. Fast, quicker, better than yesterday than now. I lost myself in, in between. I really didn't have a feeling for time anymore. Then it was in August 1988, and in the afternoon the cell opened and I had a suit there and was told to put on the suit. I said, what is suit for? I do not expect anybody. And I was asking my cellmate, what do you think, what am I supposed to wear the suit for? And he said, it was very clear, you going to go home now? I said, you sure? Just like that from one moment to the next day, you think they won't say they send, send you to labor camp in a suit? was very excited. I said, some new things going on. And I put on a suit. Then they brought me to this to this office of this um, prison director. And I saw there some lights put up, the camera on, on the stand. And I saw my dolmetscher there and um, expected something great going on. But I really didn't believe today is the day that everything else end. The suffering in 14 months I was there already would find so quick an end. I couldn't really imagine that. I couldn't really believe that, that it could happen so fast without any preparation time. But then my interpreter was telling me, you know what, Matthias? Today is the day when you are going home. And then there was this, this, uh, this prosecutor, he had a document there in, in Russian, and he started to read it. The camera was already on, and then the dolmetscher was reading, and he said, it's going to be set free immediately and to be returned where he came from. 
I repeated that word a million times in my mind. There he came from, to be set free. I was so glad to hear the few words. I had read that Gorbachev, because of the the incident and the sort of embarrassment to the Soviet Union that, that allowed him to fire a lot of generals. Is that true, or what, what do you know about that? Yes, Gorbachev used my flight as a trigger to get rid of quite a lot of officers. Two marshals, the defense minister, a lot of officers who were not supporting him during his last historica. This policy of Gorbachev was the opening closer to, to the West to disarm in most areas of the military transparency that you have, as a citizen, more ideas of what was going on in the Soviet Union at that time. And to reorganize the whole Soviet system during this 40 months I was staying in Moscow. It was like somebody was switching off the wind. And now you can, of course, running much faster without having any resistance anymore. Then I was brought in the aircraft. I was full of people. Just me and journalists from, from all over the world. They asked me then the first questions. And they said they want to hear some nice facts, something I couldn't say while I was in jail or while I was during court. I said, but there was nothing really bad that I can tell them, no? And they were really disappointed. They were accustomed to those dizzy dancers who was telling, them, oh, they tortured me hard in that chamber and they tried to straighten me and then whatever they did and they pulled out my teeth. And I told them only I was talking about my friends. I wanted to tell them that we are not much different, that we are one. But I didn't want to hear that. One of the journalists of a local newspaper in Hamburg wanted to pass over flowers. She asked me to go down the gangway, uh, shaking the flowers. I wouldn't do that because I'm not a sportsman of something. I'm not coming from a competition. I didn't win anything, and maybe it would make the wrong impression. And so I say, I'm going down without the flowers. But then I was brought out. There was really a lot of people there, put on stages. I really felt like a football player or something coming home after winning some, some cup. I was asked to stand right in front of them and then to talk to them, answer them some questions. I had a headache at the time, you know, really, a really strong headache and my head was spinning. So I asked them, just bring me away. People realized and then they started to boo. And it was really like, oh, I did something completely contrary to what they wanted. They were, they were booing? Yeah. What, 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 I don't understand. Why were they booing? Because I didn't go to them. They wanted to ask me questions. They wanted to be there. They wanted to whatever. Wanted to, I should, I should uh, do what they want. And I just walked off like, the, like I didn't take them on. And there was a moment when, when all these medias and, and print medias and started to change the direction. And from writing, I'm a hero to like, like, like something like I'm a madman or something. That I only did this to escape my mother, 
I flew to Moscow just to free myself, to earn money and for selfish ideas and so. So it became everything became very superficial. I was so overwhelming. There was just too, just too much input at that time for me. Input. Yeah, too much input. It was just like I, I felt uh, one jail I changed for the next. By only a few people. But it felt like everybody was against you at that time. To make yourself like you're flowing. Flowing on air. Something like that. I get a lot of letters from, from Germans who was threatening my life. And I was scared. I went to the police at that time with my parents and I said they cannot do anything about just some papers. It is not enough to, to do anything again. No? So I felt like I need to need to arm I need to arm myself. I did this what I actually was demonstrating against armament. So I I armed myself to defend myself. I don't know if this is too sensitive a topic, but can we, can we talk about what what happened a few years later with the um, mm -hmm. um, you know the injury of the nurse the injury of the nurse yes this was one of the consequences unfortunately it was just when I was starting my civil service in in, in this um, in the hospital what was here um, a substitute for the military service what you could apply for it was exactly this I was destabilized more than I expected. It didn't feel like it didn't feel like months after I returned to Germany that, that bad anymore. But then she said something what what later on and on the counselors see it as a hit to the mark. The, her words hit me to the mark that I had this reaction. You you remember what was said? No. I can't really remember those words. No. The counselor said it was something, something must have said, must have hit me in a way that really caused in this, in this kind of blackout situation that reaction. Make me force him to do something that was actually completely contrary to my personality. That was of no violence at all. Some words were spoken that hit me somehow and triggered that. Had injured her. How badly injured was she? It was it's life was life threatening, but it happened in 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 the hospital. So she she got an operation. There was only a, a flesh wound. No organs were hit. Mm -hmm. Fortunately. When did you realize what actually had happened? Hours later. Hours later. I was I was just walking in the forest close by this uh, this hospital, and then. They had already called the police, looking out for me. And then I couldn't really, really remember what, what happened. I only knew that something was wrong with me. It was really dark times at that time. And it was just like a question of time, the psychologist said, that something like this could happen. Anyhow, this with a knife or with with a steel bar or whatever. <clears throat> it was just like a 
like a barrel of water that all of a sudden it was was due to overflow. Und er was es, just like a small explosion und dann everything is gone. Und das was that. What what is it like to know that that's 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 inside you to realize that 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 could be brought out in the right circumstance? Deep inside me, something like that really was living all the time. I did realize before that we are dual, that we have both positive and negative. But there's so much negativity in, 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 inside me that I was actually able to do that. That surprised me and scared me. And of course, I had a lot of meetings with psychologists at that time to work that out and to, to realize that, to get stable, to, to live with the idea that I actually have blood on my hands at that time. like when the incident happened with the nurse that that gave the media an excuse to sort of disregard the earlier stuff that you did yes for sure the incident with the nurse gave them really it was feeding my critic mm-hmm. they were dancing like from the beginning he was mad like and that's now with the nurse underlined that mm-hmm. I really give them pass them over a present But I think, I think you are a little bit crazy, you know, and not not in a necessarily bad way. But I think that they're related, you know. I think that making that that initial choice for good is is similar to to going to the dark space as well. I think it was I think it was kind of crazy to think that you could change the world, and you know you did, you did obviously. Mm-hmm. But it does require something something different from how other people view of the world, you know. Mm. And I don't mean that disrespectfully. Mm. No, no, I understand. I understand what yeah. I mean. Yes, it's, I also, also judge myself as, as a crazy person in, in this in this sense. No? That I really, this makes a difference. That makes a difference between being a sheep for the rest of your life or just walking aside. That needs any kind of craziness and quotation marks. It's, it's required to, to go that, that way. That's it for Love and Radio. The show was produced by Brendan Baker, Mike Martinez, and myself, Nick Vanderkolk, with help from Sina Koppel. We are a proud founding member of Radiotopia from PRX, the only podcast network in existence. They are supported in part by the Knight Foundation and MailChimp, celebrating creativity, chaos, and teamwork. Radiotopia is at radiotopia.fm, and while you're there, be sure to listen to the latest from Strangers, from the brilliant, beautiful, and kind Leah Tao. Matthew really was the one who engaged with him and, you know, pointed out where the Statue of Liberty was, and he asked us 
whether we were Italian or American. Are you American? Are you Italian? We answered. I think Matthew said, well, I'm American. Um, I think that was more or less the extent of the conversation. And then this man took out a semi-automatic 380 Beretta handgun. You can also subscribe to Strangers at kcrw.org slash strangers. By the way, if you run a business and would like to reach, honestly, the sexiest podcast listeners in existence, consider sponsoring the show. Trust me, I spend a fair amount of time Facebook stalking my listeners, and they're a very, very attractive bunch. If you're interested, please email sponsor at prx.org. Thanks for listening. Radio Then there was a next story. I was doing a sightseeing flight in Iceland, and then two officers of the immigration immigration officers approached me and said, and they wanted to talk to me. And they asked me, um, did you land anywhere? I said, no, I didn't land anywhere. I just did some flights and was exercising. And then they presumed that I most likely landed somewhere to pick up some eggs from some eagles. No? Because I said, most likely I want to smuggle them, no? because they're, they're high-paid eggs in uh, Saudi Arabia. They paid a lot of money for that. And then, of course, they didn't find anything in my aircraft because that was not my intention. No?